Our scripture for today is from Luke 1, 39 through 55. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that which the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. All right, good morning, everybody. We are celebrating Advent this week. And Advent, if you didn't grow up in a tradition that celebrates Advent, is a time of remembrance and a time of expectation before Christmas. So traditionally, the four weeks before Christmas are a time when the church remembers and celebrates and anticipates the coming of Christ, born in Bethlehem. And over these four weeks, there are different themes that pop up. So you have hope and joy and peace and faith and love, and we celebrate those things all converging, like a giant intersection at the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. And this morning, the first uh, morning of Advent that we're celebrating, we want to talk about Christmas as a great reversal. Christmas as an underdog story, as a come-from-behind, unexpected victory of God on the earth. And one of my favorite songs for the melody is Mary Did You Know. And Mary Did You Know is such a great song. It's, I love hearing it in Christmas, but if you really think about it for a moment, and a lot of Christmas songs are this way, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Well, as we read this morning, she did know. She actually did know. The angel told her exactly what Christ would be like. Mary, did you know that this child that you delivered would soon deliver you? That is a reversal kind of line. Think about this, of all the ways that God could have come into the world, of all the ways that God could have set the world right, brought justice, brought love, paid for the sins of the world, brought the kingdom of heaven down to earth, he chose to do it in the most inconspicuous way possible. A baby boy, born not in a palace, but in a manger. Not to famous and well-to-do parents, but to a couple who wasn't even married yet, Mary and Joseph. It's a reversal story. 
And the point I want to leave you with this morning is that God proves through Christmas that his priorities are different than ours, that his vision is different than ours, and that God is a God of the reversal, of the little people, of the inconspicuous. When I was working at camp, one of, the, one of my favorite things we did is play dodgeball. And um, if you get little kids together, you start playing dodgeball. I just love the dynamics that happen when you get kids together and they're competing. And, you know, some kids are more athletic than others. And when you're playing dodgeball, that's really not that good for the unathletic kids because they have to sit on the bench after they're hit for the majority of the game. And so you, you know when you have a cabin of kids, you know that some of them are really going to struggle with dodgeball. And I had one of these kids one year. And I just knew he wasn't a good dodger. He wasn't a good thrower. He was going to spend most of his time sitting on the bench during the dodgeball game. But my favorite thing about dodgeball is when it gets down to just a few people and everybody is cheering from the benches and all of a sudden you yell, jailbreak, and everybody gets to get up and run back into the game. And I remember distinctly one time, there's a, there's a kid who's been out for the entire game and it's getting down to the last few people and we yell, jailbreak, and this other really clever kid has been holding his ball waiting. And right when the kids get up off the bench, he just nails the kids that are coming back in the game. And the kid is so distraught because he's got to go right back over to the bench. And then we yelled it again, jailbreak, again. And he's sitting down, and he gets back up, and he goes back in the game. And you should see the look on these kids' faces when the whole game gets reversed. You're not on the sidelines anymore. You're back in the game. You deserve to be on the bench, but now you get to play. Christmas is a giant jailbreak. That's what Advent celebrates, is the sidelining of those who are waiting on God and God announcing, your time now has come. The world is changing. So in our story today, we have Mary, who is the mother of Christ, going to see her cousin, Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth and Zechariah, if you start in Luke chapter 1, you might be surprised that you actually don't start with Jesus. You start with some relatives of Jesus named Elizabeth and Zechariah, and we find out that they are from a priestly family. In fact, Zechariah has just been in Jerusalem doing his duty as a priest at the temple when he is struck mute because he doesn't quite believe what God's going to do with his son. Now, Elizabeth is old, and she's barren, and she's actually a long, she's part of a long thread of barren wombs that God opens to accomplish his purpose. In fact, our story today is filled with characters, filled with little-known, insignificant, mighty, godly women. This Christmas story really is, above anything else, a story of women who were believing God, and God made true on his word. So Elizabeth is believing that God is going to open her womb, and there's something special about her son who's going to be born. And we know now that that is John the Baptist. He's going to prepare the way of the Savior. And Mary goes to visit them. And we don't know exactly how far this journey was, but it was probably several days journey. And when we open in verse 39, Mary arises, she goes with haste to the hill country to a town in Judah. And we've got to ask ourselves, why is Mary doing this? Why, as a pregnant young woman, is she going to see her cousin, Elizabeth? And I want to start our story on the road to Elizabeth and Zechariah's house. And I want to talk about 
what it was in this story, what it was about Mary specifically, there was a great reversal. So the first thing we see in the story is that Mary believed God, that what he promised was going to come true. That's the first and most important quality of Mary. And we see this in verse 45. When she sees Elizabeth, the baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb, and she says, blessed is the one who believes that there will be a fulfillment of what was spoken from the Lord. This is the most important quality about Mary because she is the model of someone who is waiting, someone who's marginalized, someone who's expecting and hoping that God will make good on his promises, but he hasn't made good on his promises yet. This is the whole Advent season wrapped up in one character, waiting for God to do what he promised. So Mary knew what she was expecting because Mary knew the scriptures. And you see this when you start to read her song, which is called the Magnificat. And the Magnificat, we call it that because that's the first word of this song in Latin. Now don't ask me why they chose the Latin instead of the original Greek or maybe the English, but it's called the Magnificat, and it is one of the most sung, most well-known pieces of Scripture in our Bibles. If any of you grew up Catholic or if you grew up Episcopalian, I grew up going to an Episcopalian school, and we would sing the Magnificat in Advent. Because this song is what Christmas is all about. And so Mary, I don't know, this song is modeled on Hannah's song in the Old Testament. It's filled with psalms, and you have to wonder, how did she come up with this brilliant song? And I think it was because she had a multi-day journey, and she's thinking about what God's doing, and she's composing a little song to herself. She's worshiping God on the way there. God has been prophesying for thousands of years that he's going to do something, that he's going to bring about a Messiah, that he's going to crush the enemy, he's going to raise up the righteous, and he's going to rule his people. And this started in the book of Genesis. All the way back when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, God says, at some point from your line, Eve, there will be someone who will come and crush the enemy. Mary is just saturated with Scripture. And you can read this and see a little bit why God chose Mary to be the mother of the Son of God. In fact, can you think about this decision? I I can't even imagine this. This is hard to think about in human terms of somebody you would entrust to raise your child. What qualities would you look for in that person? How deep a background check would you want to do? How much time would you want to spend with them? And God chooses Mary partly because Mary was the kind of person who looked at the scriptures and said, I believe that God's going to do what he said he's going to do. So she sings in this song all about what she is waiting for God to do. And one of the reminders we have in Advent is that even though Christ has come, right, we're not still in this perpetual Advent. We know what happens on Christmas. But we too are actually waiting for God to do what he said he's going to do. And the way we know what he's going to do is by being in the scriptures. And so I want to challenge you this morning. Mary was someone who trusted God in what he was going to do in the future. And we are also people who are trusting for what God is going to do in the future. And if you're going to do that, and if you're going to make an effort this Christmas, the first place you have to start is in the Word of God. If you want to know what God has promised you, and He has promised you many things, then you need to know what He says in His Word. This is why daily Bible time is so important. It's not so that we can become scholars. It's not so that we can get all the information right and the storylines. It's so that we know what to expect of God. 
We know what he's promised. We know what he's up to. We know what he's going to do. Laura and I have been doing this by reading Advent devotionals. I brought two of them this morning just as a recommendation. This one's called Tidings of Comfort and Joy, and it's by Mark Yarbrough. He's the president of Dallas Theological Seminary. And this one is called Good News of Great Joy by John Piper. And I wanted to read you just part of what we read on Friday. He says in, in, in this devotion, these are only two pages long, but we start our morning with these to center ourselves on what we're expecting of God. And listen to this. It says, he's a big God for little people, and we have great cause to rejoice that unbeknownst to them, all the kings and presidents and premiers and chancellors and chiefs of the world would follow the sovereign decrees of our Father in heaven. That we, his children, might be conformed each day to the image of his son Jesus and then enter his eternal glory. You start your day a little different when you have that in your mind. God, I'm believing that whatever happens today, all the things I've got on my calendar, all the things that I know I'm supposed to do, responsibilities and requirements, you are conforming me to the image of your son. God, I'm believing today, I'm trusting that you've said in the end, you will rule supreme over everyone. There will be no injustice, there will be no tears, there will be no sorrow, there will be joy in your presence forever. You start your day a little bit different when you believe that God is going to honor his word. We're living ready each day for what he's going to do. So Mary takes off on this journey, and the first thing is she is believing God. She's expecting God to come through on his word. But the second thing we see in this story is that Mary actually sees the world like God does. This is really important in this song. She sees the world not just as the way the world appears to her, but as God sees the world. And to get to that, we need to understand what God sees when he looks at the world. And so turn your attention to the beginning of this song in verse 47. It says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servants. Notice for a minute who gets highlighted in this song. Right? Mary goes through and she lists off six groups of people who are highlighted. These are six groups of people, we come to find out, that God is intensely focused on in Christmas. In bringing Jesus to the world, he is focused on his humble servants, in verse 48. Those who fear him, in verse 50. Those who are repentant of heart, in verse 51. Those who are lowly, in verse 52. Those who are hungry, in verse 53. His servants, Israel, in 54. What do all these people have in common? They're cast-offs, they're written-offs, they're kicked to the curb, they're not respected, they're not valued in the eyes of the world. But every one of these groups of people are focused on by the Lord. You'll see this all through the Bible, that God actually sees the world slightly differently than we do. He evaluates things with a different framework or a different compass than we do. We look for outward success, or we look for outward beauty, or we look for obvious signs of power. But God actually looks at something even deeper. Do you remember in the story of David, David is going to be anointed king. And Samuel gets all his brothers together, and David is the runt of the family. He's young, he's small, he is not impressive. And he's looking at all the brothers, and God tells him, I don't want you to look on the outside, I want you to look at the heart. And while on the outside David was the smallest, if you've spent any time in the Psalms, you realize that on the inside David's heart was 
magnificent. It was surrendered to God. It was spiritually attentive. It was a, he was a man after God's own heart. God looks at the inside. Now, you might be thinking, okay, so is this just like a big underdog complex? Is this just God just loves to flip everything around and take the people that are lowly and bring them up high and take the people that are high? And you're like, because that's going to that's gonna mess up a lot of things. And then you're also thinking, but sometimes people that are lowly are not devoted to God, right? Sometimes people that are humble and hungry and all these things that they identify, they're, spiritually, they're, they're no different than anyone else. And what I want to say is that God actually uses an entirely different framework. It's not just what is high in the world and what is low in the world. It's what is high spiritually and what is lowly spiritually. When I was given an assignment last year when I was teaching at Dallas Baptist, I give this assignment, and one of the papers they have to turn in is they have to review and analyze this article. So I picked this article, and I'd assigned it, I'd sent out the link, and they're supposed to turn in an essay kind of analyzing this. And I'm reading this essay of one of the students, I'm like, man, this is phenomenal. This is so good. It's really interesting, and they're making a lot of good points, but it's not on the right article. It's just a completely, totally different article. And so I'm writing them feedback on this assignment. And I'm saying, hey, this was wonderful, but it completely missed the assigned topic. You're a great writer. You have great insights. But this is not what I asked for. And I let them redo it because they were a great student. I don't know how. This is one of the things you learn about college students. They can figure out ways to do stuff like this that you would never dream. And they wrote a great paper afterwards. But this is the way that God assesses things. Yeah, that's, that, that's great. Your success is awesome. Your talents and the gifts, those are awesome. But I gave them to you for this purpose. This is actually what I assign for people who follow me to be like and to do and to talk like and to act like. And so you can be successful, and there's actually nothing wrong with that unless you think that that's what God loves about you. You can be powerful and charismatic, you can be wealthy, you can have status, you can do all of those things, and that's fine, unless you think that those things earn God's approval. Because what God says is, I look to the one who is lowly in heart, repentant, to the one who actually casts their cares on me, to the one who's come to the end of themselves and looks to the strength of my son. Mary also tells us what God is going to do about all this. So it's not just, blessed are those people who are in this estate. You hear this in the Beatitudes as well. And then Jesus goes on in Matthew 5 through 7 to describe what he's going to do about it. Look at the end of this psalm. He has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud. He's brought down the mighty, exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry. The rich he sent away empty, that he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He's spoken to our fathers, to Abraham. God is actually active and moving towards these goals in the world. And the invitation of Christmas is you get to be about the things that God is about in the world. One of the most fascinating books I've read in the last few years is, is a book by a guy named Rodney Stark. And he was a non-Christian sociologist who was basically trying to answer this question. How do you have 12 Galilean peasants, not educated, not powerful, they're following this teacher who dies, and they end up changing the world? How does that happen? How do you have 12 people, and one of them doesn't even pan out, 11 people who 
don't have anything really to commend them. They get almost everything wrong until after the resurrection. And in 300 years, half of the Roman Empire is Christian. So he's wondering, just sociologically, not doctrinally, not theologically, just sociologically, how did this happen? So he takes off and he does a lot of research on what happened in the early years of Christianity. And he comes up with what I would summarize under three headings of what Christians were doing and what it was about their message that went from 11 to millions and millions and millions. First thing, they began treating people like God cared about them. That's the first thing that the early church did is they began treating people like God treats people. So one of the things you see really early in the Christian, uh, before the empire is even Christian, but in the early churches, they end, they practically end infanticide in the Roman Empire because they're picking up so many discarded children because they think that those children are made in the image of God. So they begin raising all these kids. Well, that's a good way to increase numerically. The second thing they do is they begin to value the marginalized. And the two groups that are most marginalized in the Roman Empire are women and slaves. And they begin to see these people as God sees them. One of the things you'll find out if you read the New Testament is it's the women who are actually bankrolling and supporting and hosting most of the early church. This is really a surprise turn of events. In Paul's letters, when he mentions people, you see him mentioning tons and tons of Women, and in fact, one of his letters is about a slave. The book of Philemon tells Philemon to treat his former slave as a brother in Christ. So they begin to treat people like God cares about them. The second thing is they begin treating each other like family. They begin treating each other like family. This is the thing that blows Stark's mind the most. And Stark, I'll tell you, he becomes a Christian after this book. He says they began to treat each other like Christians. They have this weird thing where they call each other brothers and sisters. In fact, they were accused in the early church of having incestuous relationships because everybody was brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so and brother, and people from the outside were like, this is weird. But they treated each other like they were family. They shared possessions with each other in Acts 2 and Acts 4. They began to care for orphans and widows. They began to give up things that they had for other people like you would for a brother or sister or a father or a mother or a grandchild. And the third thing is they began spending their lives like eternity was secure. They began spending their lives like they already knew what was going to happen in the end, so they were free to give their lives to what God was doing. One of the most amazing things is there are some plagues pretty soon after the end of the New Testament. And these plagues wiped out huge portions of the population. We're talking like 20, 30% of people died in these plagues. Now, they didn't have a very robust medical care system in the Roman Empire. But what happened was Christians who knew that their eternity was secure began taking care of the sick. They began risking their lives to be with people as they were dying. They began risking their own health to surround people and make sure that they got the care that they needed. Why? Because they know how it ends. They know how it ends. They know you have a life to spend here and a life in eternity with God. And so they began living their lives like that was true. And the call of Christmas is you have also been invited to live in such a way that you can be about the things that God is about in the world. The third thing we know about Mary 
is she answered the call. She answered the call. She hadn't just been waiting, and she didn't just know what God was about. She actually stepped up and did it. So she was living ready, and in Advent, we are practicing that as well. We are ready for what God might call us to do. We are ready for God to move things and shape things and direct us in our lives, and we're ready to follow him. And an example I always love about this, if you go to Israel, you'll see these really odd-looking groups of people, and they're called the Druze people. And the way that you can spot a Druze person is the men wear these pants that go down just below their knees in the middle. And I remember asking our guide at one point, like, why do they wear those? I mean, they just look like they need a tailor is what they need. And he was like, this is weird. He's, he's Jewish. He's not Druze. He says, this is weird. The Druze don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They believe that the Messiah is still coming. But they believe that the Messiah is going to come from a man. So all the men wear these pants because if the Messiah comes, they don't want him to hit the ground. I was like, there's so many things about this I don't understand. But what I do think is they are living like they are ready. Right? They, are, they are putting their money where their mouth is. They're putting their wardrobe where their mouth is. They are ready for what they believe to happen. At any moment, the Messiah could come. You do not want him to hit the ground. So they wear these pants because they're living on mission. They're ready. And as Christians, we don't have wardrobe things that we need, but we have an attitude of our spirit to be ready for what God is going to do. Mary is ready, and Elizabeth notices this. Now, in some ways, Mary was such an unlikely character. I want to remind you a couple of things we know about Mary. First of all, she is really young, very young. It was the custom in this time that girls would get betrothed, which is kind of like engagement, at 12 or 13 years old. So she is very young, preteen, early teenager, and she's going to get married the following year. So she's very young. Second of all, she's very insignificant. Okay, she's from the town of Nazareth, which is a nowhere town. There is nothing of note in Nazareth. And in fact, Luke knows that if you're reading this, you probably don't know where Nazareth is. So he gives us directions almost. He gives us the province and the region to tell us where Nazareth is. She's, um, when the angel comes to her, she's completely confused. Look back if you've got your Bible up into Luke chapter 1. Look back at verse 28. When the angel comes, he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And it says, Mary was greatly troubled at this. If this is troubled in the sense of confused. She has nothing that she could point to to think that God would say, You are favored. Her whole life had been something of not favored. So she's insignificant, she's young, and she's about to be socially cast out, right? This was a huge decision for Mary. This was, this was news that actually did not come as good news unless you believe in God's promises. Because being pregnant in her day, outside of marriage, would have carried a terrible stigma. In fact, this is likely why she goes to visit Elizabeth, because she does not want to be in her hometown because of the shame that she's going to endure. So it says at the end of our passage today that she stays there for three months. So right as she begins to show, she goes and leaves town so she can avoid the stigma. We see this in Joseph's story too. Joseph also would have undergone uh, a shift socially because he was betrothed. This is his fiance. And we know that she is someone who's staking her entire reputation her entire future, her entire social status 
that God is going to make good on what he says he's going to do. If you look back at verse uh, 42, Elizabeth says something really interesting to Mary. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Okay, this isn't just a generic blessing. This isn't just good for you, Mary. This is a quote from the Old Testament. And I think it is so interesting that this is the thing that Elizabeth chooses to say to Mary. You know, Elizabeth evokes in this quote, she evokes a long history of women who have served God. Think about Sarah, who is Abraham's wife, and she believes that even though she is getting close to 100, she's going to have a son. Think about Rahab, who doesn't know God, but believes what she's heard, and she hides the spies from Israel in her own town that's going to be destroyed. Think about Hannah, who sings a song just like this one in 1 Samuel 2, who gives her son to the Lord, her only son to the Lord. When God opens her womb, she sends him to the tabernacle to be trained as a priest. But there's actually one other woman that she's referring to, and her name is Jael, and we find her story in Judges chapter 4. Now, Jael, we meet her in chapter 4, verse 17, and it's in the midst of the period of the judges where Israel is trying to conquer the promised land, but they keep worshiping foreign gods, and they keep getting conquered, and then they cry out to God, and then they conquer, and then this cycle happens over and over and over in Judges. Now, in this situation, the army of the Canaanites is attacking Israel, and Israel is losing, and the military commander's name is Sisera. So Sisera has been routed, and he is fleeing, and it says, and Sisera came to the tent of Jael. Now, if you're a Hebrew or Israelite, you're thinking, this is kind of interesting because Jael's name means billy goat, okay? (laughs) Not real flattering. I don't know a lot of young girls named Jael these days, but Jael's name means billy goat. So we've got kind of a rough and ready character entering the story. And what happens is, Sisera comes by, and Jael says, oh, c- come by our tent. And what she does is she says, why don't, you know what, you're probably pretty tired from all this, so why don't you lay down? Jael's an Israelite. She says, you're probably pretty tired. I'll give you safety, and uh, you go ahead and lay down. And she even warms him up some milk, and there's actually this yogurt concoction that she makes for him. So she's really rolling out the red carpet here for this military commander. And When Sisera lays down and goes to sleep, Jael gets a tent peg and a hammer. And she ends the problem of the Canaanite army. Let's just put it that way. If you want to see the details, this I don't know why somebody hasn't made Judges into a Netflix series. It's got all everything you'd want. It's got all kinds of intrigue, it's got dysfunction, it's got violence, it's got everything you would want in a good series. So Jael basically takes care of the problem of Sisera, and the judge at this point is named Deborah. And Deborah comes by, and she begins to sing a song as well, and she says, Most blessed of women are you, Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling people, you will be most blessed. So this is what Elizabeth decides to say to Mary. This same word, this same phrase, blessed are you among women, blessed are you, the fruit of your womb, most blessed are you, Mary, evoking this image of Jael. And you think to yourself, what does Mary have to do with Jael? I mean, it seems like a real contrast. 
And I want to remind you of something that God said all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. He says to Eve, after Eve and Adam have sinned, he says to Eve, your seed and the serpent's seed are going to be at enmity for a long time. And the seed of the serpent is actually going to reach out and strike someone from your line. But he is going to crush the head of the enemy. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. And I'll give you guys a little tip when you're reading your Bible. Every time you see a serpent, you should expect their head to get crushed. And every time you see a head being crushed, you should think of Jesus triumphing over evil. And so what Elizabeth is saying is going all the way back and saying, what God promised then is happening now. Mary, you're a serpent crusher. You are someone who's taking part in what God is doing, triumphing over evil, pushing back darkness, crushing the enemy by carrying this child, by mothering him. And we know that this was not easy for Mary. Think about her standing at the crucifixion. This was not easy for Mary, but what she was doing was shepherding, being faithful, leading what God had done to crush the serpent forever. Just like J.L. did there, Mary said yes when it came time to eliminate evil. She aligned herself with God. She was doing his will. She was pushing back evil in the world. So the application for this morning is God is still doing these things. That's why we celebrate Advent. It's because we're reminded that God wants to do the same things in you. He wants you to know what he's promised. He wants you to be ready. And he wants you to step up when he calls you into his service. So are you living ready? Are you living like God's going to make good on his word? And the real challenge for us this morning is, are you ready to be reshuffled? To have a reversal take place in your life? Are you ready for Christmas to be something that isn't just the continuation of the status quo, but is part of the process of God transforming and shaking up the world? You can be strong in the eyes of the world, or you can be weak. You can be materially rich or poor. You can be famous, obscure, infamous. But the message of Mary this morning is your value comes in what God says about you. That's the reshuffling that's taking place. Your significance comes not by what you've done for God, but what God is doing through you. Your worth doesn't come from anything external. It comes from what somebody else came to do for you, somebody who was born in a manger. As Mars and Josh come up, I'll leave you with this. Christmas means reversal. It means we live differently. It means our priorities change. It means we see the world the way God does. And J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, was writing a letter to his son, Christopher. And he's describing this concept. And in the letter he says, all of a sudden I realized exactly what it was, the thing I'd been trying to write about and explain. And to describe it, I coined the word eucatastrophe, the sudden happy turn in a story that pierces you with joy and brings you tears. That's what Christmas is. It's the good kind of catastrophe. It is the catastrophe that God has broken into the world, reshuffled it, reversed it. There's a cosmic jailbreak in which God is going to bring his will to fruition in the world. And the question we ask at Advent is, are you with him? Are you believing it? Are you ready for it? Are you living on mission with what he's doing? Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning and for your word, for your people, for 
the opportunity to worship you. Lord, we want to be a part of what you're doing. Give us eyes, Lord, in the next few weeks especially. Give us eyes to see people and things and events that you're calling us to step into. Father, give us a heart that looks towards things spiritually, that looks at the heart, that looks according to the way that you see the world. Father, retrain us to match priorities with you. Lord, help us not to be distracted. Help us not to be seduced by all the things that the world promises. Father, help us to be like Mary who sees what you see and does what you call us to do. In Jesus' name we pray.